Hi, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome to Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people changing the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. In the coming episodes, I'll be meeting people from all parts of the property spectrum. Beyond the better-known examples of PropTech, I'll be meeting architects, planners, developers, consultants, investors, agents, tech entrepreneurs, and many more, all of whom are changing the way that things are done in the real estate industry. We'll be exploring their ideas, learning what makes them tick, and discovering what the future holds. I can think of no better place to start this journey than with Chris Choa, who as a designer of cities has to take the broadest of views in his approach, and who not only has to keep abreast of how things are changing right now, but who also has to accommodate for how they may change in the future. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do help spread the word by rating us in iTunes. You can also follow our progress on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can subscribe for episode updates via our website, buildingourfuture.net. I'm joined today by Chris Chur, who currently enjoys a dual role as Vice President at ACOM, the International Land and Development and Infrastructure Consultancy, and as Chairman of ULI UK, the not-for-profit education and research body focused on development, land use and urban planning. At ACOM, Chris is Head of the Cities Division, advising on large-scale strategic infrastructure projects across the globe. Chris is also almost midway through his voluntary two-year term as Chairman of ULI UK. For those that aren't familiar with it, ULI is the Urban Land Institute, of which we will speak more in due course. Chris is a cities expert and a leading light in understanding the impact that future technologies, such as driverless cars, are likely to have on our built environment. Chris, welcome to the show, and thank you for being such a willing volunteer in getting the program up and running. Well, thank you, Bert. Thanks for the invitation. It's lovely to be sat here in the up in the clouds above Allgate East in the ACOM offices. And I wonder if you could start by just explaining to us what, what is your role as a, as a cities expert? It's an interesting question, Bert. To be a cities expert, uh, it's probably a little bit more than having the technical skills to design any part of the city. It's probably a little bit more like being a psychoanalyst of cities. We have to figure out not only how they work physically, but what are the city's desires? What are they thinking about? What motivates them? What makes cities anxious? And it's as much trying to determine those subjective qualities that helps make somebody a city expert as any particular technical skill. With these skills, who, who are you advising? And what, what, is, the, what is the end game of, of this kind of macro, macro thinking? Well, it depends a little bit on, on the hat that I'm wearing. Uh, as part of AECOM, I lead uh, a lot of our cities' projects worldwide. So normally our clients for those kinds of projects tend to be city mayors, planning authorities, uh, large sovereign wealth funds, for example. They could be private developers who develop at a very large scale. And typically we work at anything from a large architectural scale, for example, uh, extensions of campus uh, for Northwest Cambridge to developing a master plan for Old Oak Common in London. And they can go on to larger and larger scales, scales until you're pretty much working uh, to, fi- to reposition the Lido in Venice, for example, 
or to design territorial expansions in Saudi Arabia that could be 25, 35,000 square kilometers of the size of uh, a small country. That must be very exciting when you have a, just a purely blank canvas like that. It's, uh, it is exciting. It's a little terrifying. And we always imagine that artists and, and designers and economists love blank canvases, but actually constraints are often very useful, if nothing else, uh, than to set a culture, to set a story that you then begin to develop. On the flip side, do you have in, in a in a um, I suppose a, a different environment like in the UK, where it's, it's clearly much more established? Uh, is the battle then you can have big picture thinking with with public sector and, and councils doing the master planning, but trying to get uh, the private sector in, to engage in the delivery of that? Is that are you involved in that, and is that problematic? Well, that's that's very much what we're involved in. It's not problematic. It's just the way things are. The tension in cities, in particular emerging cities or cities that are already very successful, is that on one hand, they need to think about how to remain competitive globally. How can they attract the next generation of innovators, of investors, of talent, of energy into their cities, and yet at the same time, how they can maintain and take care of their existing populations, their established neighborhoods. So there's always this tension between global and local, between creating the diversity that creates change that's good for the city and maintaining the solidarity that keeps neighborhoods together and the city culture functioning at the same time. When we work for cities or when we address the needs of councils, this is always an issue as well. The the city has ambitions, the council has ambitions, what it needs to do in order to make their areas thrive, the kind of infrastructure that's required. This often requires a great deal of capital, for example, and organization. In some cases, it outstrips the funding and the resources that the cities or the resources or the councils have for themselves. The question very quickly turns then to how can the private sector get involved? How can they be induced to take on the risk that makes these areas developed? And how can that initiative be accepted and and supported by the people who already live in those places? I guess there's an alternative dynamic here as well where Sometimes uh, the direction of a city might be might be pushed by the by the occupants. If we if we take uh, recent years in London, where the tech and media scene has really exploded and and started to replace in part our reliance on the financial services sector, do you think that's unfair of me to assume that that, that was organic rather than planned, or, or other things happening behind the scenes in terms of planning which are, are enabling that? It's a very good question and. It seems like a very simple question, but actually it's quite complicated. An old school way of developing a city is to emphasize all the aspects that improve the quality of life. For example, we would like to widen the streets. We're going to make a beautiful campaign to plant a thousand trees. We are going to control the signage so that it's attractive. And then we hope that the next generation that is attracted to those things will come. And uh, then they will uh, be also attracted by by what we think their industrial focus should be, whether it's media, tech, finance, or whatever. 
I think to a certain extent, city planners and the people who advise cities have become a little bit more modest about those things. And they recognize that there's no way to predict what the city should be focusing on in the first place. We know for a fact that you know most of the things that are familiar to us now in tech didn't exist 20 or even 10 years ago. Right. So the question then is, think about who the people might be, the kinds of people that we, we might want to have in cities, do our best to attract them, and then they in turn attract others. So if we think that maybe left-handed Japanese economists who are educated in France and can speak Chinese is probably a good bet for what would bring the best of the future to the city. We will do anything possible to attract maybe 10 of those people to come to the place. Literally, we'll do anything that it takes. And then in turn, they will attract 20 more of exactly the same kind of people. Then the next round of people will be attracted because the first round is there. And then some coffee shops will open up or stores will open up because the first 100 people are there. And that in turn creates this node and acceleration of innovation and and new types of industries that happen. So if you think about how tech came to London, if you think about East London and even the area that we're in, how it all happened, none of this was planned. It was a kind of happy accident simply because there was a lot of affordable housing in East London that was reasonably well-connected and quite close to the city. And people moved there because it was cheap. No one knew that it was tech versus cooking. No, I, I guess that's right. And you, you have a kind of similar thing going on down in Margate now where displaced artists have created their own new community just by kind of happenstance. Right? right. And that's, of course, the huge secret of cities is that people are not attracted to beautiful buildings. They're not attracted to lovely trees. People are attracted to other people. And the trick is how do you get the first people to come to stay? How do you get that first wave of next generation innovators to come and to stay there was a piece of work done about that a few years ago i forget by who but i'll put it in the cast notes if i can find it where um someone was tracking uh, the gay bohemian index and land values and how they correlated with it so soho is the classic example of it you, you have a funky arty place and developers jump all over it and then price the price the bohemians out and you move on move on to the next place yeah we, we should call it the uh... Uh, the GBI, the, the Gay Bohemian Index Real Estate Fund. We can probably raise, <laughs> raise some monies against that. The, the, the technology side is is clearly very interesting. It feels, particularly on from a real estate perspective, that we're living in unparalleled times of technological change. When you're thinking, and you know, city planning is really long term. How do you think about future proofing cities, or do you build for the present and just allow for the future? That's also a very good question. It's hard to future-proof against things that you don't know about. So to a certain extent, you just have to be resilient and be willing to change and to accommodate change. That's probably the most important thing a city can do. We can think about made cities and making cities. Made cities are established cities. The identity is already fixed. Uh, We know them well because it's where we go on holiday, maybe it's where we would want to live if we retire. To a certain extent, uh, those cities are dominated by 
tourism and real estate, they're not that flexible. And then they're making cities. These are pe- places and, and, and people in the developing world for the most part. And it's places where they go to make their fortunes. They're often hard scrabble, newly emerged, rough, but it's where you go to make your fortune. And those places change very rapidly. Not every city is one way or another. There's some cities, uh, London is a perfect example, where there are made and making areas. Young people can't afford or won't go to the established areas, but they'll go to the fringes, for example, because it's dynamic, it's turbulent, but there are opportunities there. I think um, that's very, very much the issue. Tech in all of this is a disruptor. We know that. We can see how it's changing and disrupting everyone's lives, all the professions. In the city realm, there are many opportunities related to tech. Of course, the industries that rely on tech are changing. That, in turn, changes the workforce. Uh, And there are also aspects of tech that will change the city spatially. Autonomous vehicles will probably be first and foremost. Autonomous vehicles and the AI behind AVs allows an extreme form of sharing. Yeah. And and once it becomes much more desirable to access mobility as opposed to simply own a car, you need fewer cars. Right. You don't need to park those cars. The parking spaces no longer take up public realm, either at home or at work. And a huge chunk of land can be repurposed for other uses. At least 10 or 15% of the lands that we have locked down in the middle of cities now can be used for other things. By shrinking roads or or is this taking over car parks? You can shrink roads, you can take over car parks, you can introduce new uses in existing car parks. You know, think about it this way. Every car that somebody owns takes up at least three parking spaces one at home, one at work, one for everything in between. Mm. What would you do if you didn't need those spaces? Could it be room for uh, supply chain just-in-time delivery? Could it be a new park? Could it be a school? Could it be new housing, new, uh, new workspace? All sorts of things. One of the other things that really interests me about autonomous vehicles, and I think there are various debates about how one gets to a state where they are the norm, but putting those aside, if, if we can assume we get there, I know in recent weeks we've had uh, we've had a, a, an accident with with a Google a Google vehicle, but I think it's safe to assume that it is the future. One of the benefits is also how it changes one's commute. So instead of driving or taking the train, you can effectively be sat in a mobile office on your way into work. Now the way many cities and towns are planned and designed at the moment is is based and, and they grow around infrastructure and transport hubs. Will autonomous vehicles then just fundamentally change the way that our our cities are planned? And if it's not around infrastructure, what will our cities grow up around? Well, I think we go back to what we were talking about before. Despite all the changes and advances in technology, the increasing adoption of things like autonomous vehicles, my bet is that humans will do what humans actually want to do, which is to come closer together. We're social creatures. We complain about each other all the time. But we move naturally to places where we can meet other people, we can interact with them, we can trade and exchange with them, 
and we need it almost on an evolutionary basis to succeed. So I think what will probably happen with autonomous vehicles is that it will change the way people commute and they travel. It will probably increase the amount of movement away from mainline, hardline public transport, but it will also allow people to have innovative ways to come in closer together to live and work more closely uh, than they ever have before. Does it concern you from a UK perspective when you think about the the huge amounts of cash which are being forward committed to really big long-term infrastructure projects, which as a result of being in the UK are all being, they're all effectively retrofitted and therefore really expensive. Is there a real danger that by the time they really come to fruition, technology just would have passed them by and we'll be, we'll be just traveling around in totally different ways? I don't think we can say that it will be a wasted investment. Anything that allows people to come closer together creates opportunities, novel opportunities. In the 1990s, before the first big dot-com bubble happened, there was a massive investment in fiber optics, especially in the United States, and way more than was ever required. And that actually laid the grounds after the dot-com bust for all sorts of innovation because there was so much bandwidth that was available. Mm. We are in another interesting and potentially testing time in the UK where a global city like London, simply because it has the mass, the density, the thickness of the labor force to be globally competitive, is pulling away from the UK hinterland at the detriment of uh, smaller, medium, and and, uh, medium-scale cities and smaller towns. Until you can connect that hinterland with a core, you risk pulling away from the hinterland. So legacy, high-speed, fixed rail, expensive projects that manage to link the core and the hinterland closer together creates opportunities for both, and probably in ways we don't really anticipate. Not only does it reduce the travel times between them to a point where, say, if you can get a connected population that can move around within an hour commute, uh, they're part of the same economic unit, but it also allows us to increase the capacity of the existing lines that are already maybe servicing towns and cities in between those larger lengths. I think that touches on something which has interested me since since being a member of the ULI, which we will talk about in a bit, which is the the, um, implications of densification, which is often seen as a bad thing um, from a, a public perspective. Uh, and yet all the research research seems to suggest that actually humans are much happier living in close in this environments. And the, the classic example is Barcelona and Atlanta, Georgia, which are broadly similar in size, but in landmass, Atlanta's 10 times plus. Uh, and people are uh, a lot more unhappy because there's more segregation, there's more travel times, uh, traffic jams everywhere, etc. Is the future greater densification? And, and where's the balance between getting the public on board and simply just strong leading from the, the planning authorities? Well, again, it's the paradox. We, we think we are repelled by density and we always imagine some kind of 
bucolic other self in the countryside or on a beach or isolated on a mountain. But the facts speak otherwise. We have never, ever before in history had so many people living in cities, and the trend is set to continue, especially in parts of the world uh, that are not here. They're, they're in, in Asia, and in, uh, in China and India in particular. About a million people a year will be moving to cities over the next 15 years for just those two countries alone, India mm-hmm. and China. Nobody is forcing them to move there. They're going because of opportunity. They're going because of social connection. I'm not even sure environmentally it's something we would ever want to reverse. The more people move to cities, the better educated they become, the more equal they become between men and women. On a per capita basis, ranked for consumption, they consume fewer resources, they pollute less. So cities are a very, very good thing. They're a natural expression of humans' desires to come closer and to become part of a broader network. And, and not just cities, I mean, denser cities we're, we're really talking about. Yeah, we're de- absolutely denser cities. And if you look at the places in the world that are performing more strongly economically, across the board, they're always denser cities. And yet, as you say, you have this paradox that generally the more densification you push for if you're a developer going through the planning process, the more, the more pushback you get. Um, so I wonder, I wonder what the, the resolution to that, particularly with the UK. UK well, view. I mean, at some point when the planning process has an ideology which for political reasons may prefer not to be denser, in the short term it satisfies a need for a neighborhood to maintain its solidarity, to resist change. In the long term, people have choices and they may choose to go to a place that allows them to come closer to other people, allows them to trade and exchange in novel ways, and ignore the places that uh, did not allow them to do that in the first place. If we locked London down or any city down under a protectionist regime, at some point it creates unintended consequences. It could be extreme inequality. Yep. Uh, it could be very high house prices. And at some point, a young person who's choosing to go somewhere may say, this is just not right for me. I don't have a place here. They don't want me. I'm going to go to some other place. Right. And I I think we are starting to see that in the UK. It suddenly, Mm -hmm. and I don't have the data to back it up, but it certainly feels like the the other big cities outside of London and the UK are starting to find their voice a little bit more in recent years. And Well, that's true. But there's also examples that we know very well. San Francisco in the 1970s, Uh, resisted development uh, that was going to challenge the character of their uh, wood frame houses along, you know, the shores of of the city. And they, that seemed like a good thing. Historical preservation, who's against that? This was the DNA of San Francisco that people were fighting to preserve. As a result, unintended consequence of that, there was less capacity to absorb new population. And when all of a sudden you had an innovation like the tech industry that really tried to flood in there with very, very little stock available, it created enormous inequalities. And San Francisco is a fascinating place, but it's arguably becoming one of the most unequal cities Mm. in America. So if you really care about inequality, you have to think twice before you fully embrace a planning regime that 
is against density. Interesting. Something that we have touched on variously throughout this is is your role as current UK ULI chairman. And as a member myself, it would be remiss not to not to touch upon it. Could you explain to our listeners who may not be aware of it just what the ULI is and what it is you've set out to achieve? There are three words, urban, land, and institute. And I cannot imagine three words I like more in my life to think about. Urban, which is about a state of mind. It's the embracing of civic space between people, uh, high density, activity, mobility, all those things. Land, which is the description of the actual territory and the commitment to environmental, sustainable approaches. And institute, which is the research, the academic side, the thoughtful side of any group of people. So right from the get-go, I think it's just a fabulous organization. It's a it's a member-driven uh, organization of more than 40,000 people worldwide. And uh, as you know from your own participation, it's, it's a very, very rich group of people in the sense that they come from an enormous range of backgrounds. It's not just real estate development, it's capital markets, it's governance, it's education. It's a whole range of people who contribute to the responsible use of, of land. We focus on our research. We advise uh, mayors and other groups who are doing you know, all sorts of projects. We hold symposia. We bring members together to discuss, debate the challenging aspects of uh, the responsible use of land. We create opportunities to train the next generation of leaders. We have an urban plan program, for example, that goes into schools and socializes ideas about planning, and, and we do uh, game scenarios about city planning. We have councils, uh, and this is typically how the members participate, that are focused on particular areas, whether it's residential or retail or commercial or infrastructure, and we see the development of urban land through the lens of those councils. We recently started in the UK an urban art forum, which looks at the reciprocal effects of urban art and land, for example. So we can look at land in so many different ways. There's so many different stories, but ultimately it's about the responsible use of urban land. And I think one of the great things is it's it's open to everyone. So mm. A, not, not just surveyors, but also regardless of what age you are, everyone's encouraged. There are, there are different things for, for different levels of experience, but on the whole, well, well, it, it is totally inclusive uh, and everyone's encouraged to get involved. So please make sure you check out the website and do so. Your impact has already been clearly seen uh, at, as under your chairmanship at the ULI. And it's been predominantly, well, from, from my perspective, through your choices of uh, guest speakers. And it seems very obvious that you're keen to expand the membership far beyond the traditional reaches of the property industry. Where do you see this going and who do you want more involved? I think we look at what cities are as an artifact for a moment, and they are not they're not things. They're really a network. Cities are really an incredible human invention that allows larger and larger groups of people to come together and trade and exchange in ever novel ways. So the groups that I instinctively want to reach out to are groups that may not be traditional 
urban development players, but have a network mindset. So tech companies, for example, groups that develop game engines for social media platforms, for example, are used to thinking this way. Groups that are trying to develop crowdsourced funding, for example, are, are groups that think this way. Anybody who thinks about how to scale up using network effects are fascinating for us because we can learn from their outlook and they can learn from our territorial base as well. One of the themes of, of ULI is, is globalization and it's, it's a global body. On the subject of tech, however, how does the UK rate in comparison to the, the rest of the world on our adoption of technology within the real estate sector? That's a good question. I don't really know, and I'm not 100% sure that anyone really has an answer to that. The ability for the real estate sector to adopt tech can come from the social media platforms that allow people to be aware of assets that they may not otherwise be aware of. So, for example, Airbnb allows people to know when there's availability of, of people who are renting out a room. The asset doesn't change. The tech platform just increases the awareness of what's available. A lot of the, the platforms that are out there are not UK platforms or American platforms. They're global platforms. And to the extent that the UK adopts those things, it will realize the benefits. And I think the UK is well within the median of all of that. I don't think it's uh, lagging that far behind in any particular way. Even in autonomous vehicles, a lot of interesting trials for AVs are happening on UK roads. There's platooning of uh, large freight vehicles uh, from Scotland down towards England and back. There are trials of AVs in, in, in Greenwich, for example. We are anticipating and integrating autonomous vehicles and smart city analytics into a lot of our uh, master planning work that we export worldwide. So I think the UK is actually not lagging behind. Is it the superior testing ground for a lot of this technology? Probably not as much as some other places, but I don't think there's any place that's probably a world leader in any of this stuff. I may just be speaking for myself here, but I, I have the impression that us in the UK are slightly more skeptical of really big tech and handing over all of the data to them. And that's probably been borne out in recent days with the Facebook scandal. But if you look at something like Toronto, where Google are really planning a whole new urban sector for them, I just feel like that's something which would be less likely in the UK. And we, we are more comfortable working with whole range of different companies and spreading, well, arguably both the risk, but also hopefully the innovation or the ability to innovate. Well, ever since the Victorians, I suppose, uh, the UK has really been about pragmatic incrementalism. It doesn't embrace entirely new technologies or entirely new infrastructures and will completely do away with the old ones almost overnight the way, for example, Switzerland might. I'm not sure which is better or yeah. worse, to be honest. Uh, I think they're actually two very, very different philosophies. It's a little bit like trying to argue whether Confucianism or Taoism is better. They're, they're, they know either of them are. Yeah, <laughs> they, they exist side by side. And it's possible that the incremental approach of the UK creates advantages. For example, think about how London 
was not completely refashioned in the way some American cities were refashioned with motorways that were cutting right through the heart of yeah, the city. True. It's basically a kind of, I don't know, uh, animist resistance to to uh, wild change yeah. uh, that allows a new kind of life which is very desirable to, to exist in these legacy old cities. There are other places like China, for example, which wake up every morning and they understand a little bit better perhaps about the world that they're in and can make huge sweeping initiatives. But then it would raise the kind of privacy concerns that would make that unacceptable in the UK, for example, just on the data yeah. side. And from your perspective, I, I have a feeling you're going to say autonomous vehicles, but do you think that will be the, the largest change in terms of our urban design or have the largest impact in the in the coming years? Well, I think autonomous vehicles will probably be the thing that is easiest to track and be aware of simply because we will be fascinated by the shiny baubles of the technology itself, the cars and everything else, the shuttles. And along the lines of what we discussed before, it would radically change the way we use the land and we might be able to repurpose the land. But there will be other tech-enabled influences, and I would say mostly related to the rise of sharing in general. So with technology, we are starting to prefer access over commodity. Uh, We want the experience, not necessarily the ownership. And you think about all the things that we do in our life that now we we share, uh, that we used to not share, tech will only accelerate that. You know, in the 18th century, if you had means, um, you didn't have restaurants, you had a cook. And if you wanted to come to my house, you came to my house, my cook would cook for you. And then, you know, somebody came up with the idea of sharing the cook and we invented restaurants. And now we wouldn't really think of everyone having a private cook. You would have a choice of almost unlimited amounts of restaurants. And frankly, we can eat much better than we ever used to eat when we had cooks and, you know, hundreds of years ago. I think the same is going to be true for pretty much everything else in our life that we manage to innovate and to share. One of the things that I think is very interesting about your background is um, it's not your typical real estate background. So you studied fine art and architecture in various East Coast Ivy League institutions. How did you end up as a cities expert? I think at the end of the day, I like people. I love people. I like meeting new people. I like the insights that they create for me. I enjoy novel experiences that I could not have possibly had on my own. And I think that as humans, we're limited by our own imaginations. We learn through accidents. We learn from the random encounters that we have with other people. And it's a metaphor for evolution in general. I think for me, painting and drawing, which is how I started, was an extreme form of nonlinear thinking. It allowed me to take advantage of accidents on a, on a piece of paper Uh, I could juxtapose ideas in ways that I might not have been able to do in any other way. So I think it created a kind of expectation of what I could get out of uh, my professional life. And then I trained and practiced for many years as an architect. I lived and worked in Asia for quite some time. And by the time you spend a good bit of your professional life in China, you know that you don't just design a building, you design scores of buildings, you design hundreds at the same time. And then the network, the system 
in which those buildings exist becomes much more interesting than any particular building. And that created the foundations for what I do now. Obtaining a a bigger and bigger picture until ultimately, unless you become a a world expert, uh, it's probably as as big as... Yeah, and then then you go back to drawing and painting. (laughs) I've got one final question, which I ask all of my guests, which is, um, what's your favorite building? The longer I'm around, the less and less I think about any particular building. And I just think about the network and the spaces between the buildings. And I begin to think that the network is what we are attracted to. Mm. The network is what we remember. It's the setting of the building that we remember perhaps more than the building itself. And I think it's completely changed my outlook on that. Well, thank you very much for for being such a a willing guest uh, and best of luck in your final year as chairman of ULI UK. Well, Bert, thank you very much. uh, And we hope to have all sorts of new members and interested parties come as soon as possible. So there we have it. So many interesting themes to pick up on from talking to Chris. Perhaps the most pervasive idea is the need to ensure that our real estate is continually aiming to bring people together. This can be achieved in many ways, through infrastructure connectivity, inclusive design, and focusing on achieving densification over urban sprawl. As Chris points out, buildings and developments don't sit apart. They function as part of the fabric of the environment they sit in. In this context, Chris's aim of widening the scope of the real estate industry through his work at ULI makes perfect sense. I would encourage those not already involved to check out the ULI website and the list of their upcoming events. Whether you're a student or just looking for your next big idea, it's a great place to start. In the meantime, please head to our website for some further links to some of the topics covered in the episode. And please don't forget to rate the show on iTunes. It really does help.